Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and we're going to open with prayer. Lord, we just thank you for the time that we've had of worshiping in, your, in song. Lord, you are one that we should be depending on more, and you grow sweeter with each day of passing. And the peace that you give us by knowing you is so wonderful. And we just thank you for all of that. We ask you to bless this time as we open your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, starting at verse 23. All this I approved by wisdom. I said I will be wise, and it was far from me. That which was far off and exceedingly deep, who can find it out? I applied my heart to know and to search and to seek out wisdom and the reason of things and to know the wickedness of folly, even the foolishness and madness. And I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets and her hands as bands. Whoso pleases God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be taken by her. Behold, this I have found, says the preacher, counting one by one to find out the account, which yet my soul seeks, but I find not. One man among a thousand have I found, but a woman among all those I have not found. Lo, this only have I found, that God has made man upright but they have sought out many inventions. Here is a picture of Solomon's depression still. He says, you know, I've tried to prove everything by wisdom. And if you remember this book, he has tried just about everything there is under the sun. He has tried riches, he has tried uh, alcohol, he's tried the drugs, he tried to say, well, let me put my name on everything, I'll build parks, I'll build buildings, I want fame, you know, he's tried uh, the, the uh, sex, he's tried everything, and he comes to the conclusion, all of it is foolishness. All of it is vanity. And this is what we have as a message for people. When we finally get to know Jesus, he fills us the emptiness that, that Solomon is saying, everything is empty. Everything without God is empty because remember we said at the very end of this, he's going to say in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, let us hear the conclusion of the matter, the whole, of the whole matter. Fear God and serve God for this is the whole of man. All right? So he says God is our only answer. And, you know, I hope that for us as we taken our testimony and you remember back the day when you got saved and God filled your life and hopefully you know what that was you were looking for God you were searching for God you did not have the peace that passes understanding and you got God in your life and all of a sudden peace came in now that peace has to be kept there by being in his word and being in fellowship but that peace is out there without God there is no peace and we need to be able to understand that without him there is none and, you know, I've known people who have gone to church all their life. They could tell you the gospel message, but they don't know God until really late sometimes in their life. You can come to church every week and not know God. You can be in your Bible and not know God. You can hang out with nothing but Christians and still not know God and be a Christian. Because it is a conscious choice that you say, God, I am a sinner. I need your help. Come into my life and be Lord. And it doesn't have to be those exact words, but something along that nature saying, God, I can't do it. And having him reach down into your life. Because that is when the peace comes. And this is what Solomon's whole book is about. Looked for peace everywhere, didn't know it. And he started out on the right track. God came to him in a dream and said, what do you want? 
And if you read 2 Samuel, as we just read in our Wednesday night study, so David and Bathsheba called him Solomon, but God called him loved of God. Je- Jehodiah, loved of God. He had a different name than God gave him a name. You know, God gave him that name. And it's an amazing thing. And he goes, he wanted to know all that. And he says, some things are exceedingly deep, and who can discover or secure them? You know, I love to think about God. You know, I've been, I've been studying my Bible for 48 years, trying to learn about all the things there is to know about God. And you know what? I still don't know everything there is to know about God. And I'm glad that I don't. Because it has been said, and I truly agree, that if I could know everything about God, he's not big enough. And you know, this is true for us. If we made a God that we knew everything there was to know about God, who would be God? It wouldn't be God anymore because I would know everything and he would not know everything. I would be making myself God. And how many people do you have you met that their God is really themselves? They may tell you they're worshiping a God. Many people who say they're Christians are worshiping something. I don't know what they're worshiping, but they don't, they're worshiping a God who would never send anybody to hell because he's just too loving. He would never punish the, the evil because he loves them too much. He's just nothing but love. What a weak God that is. You know, do we really want to have a God that doesn't punish evil? We do it all the time. When somebody gets a light sentence or a slap on the wrist in, in our courts, we're going, that judge was a bad judge. And yet we'll say, God, we want you to not punish, you know, especially me, don't punish me. Go ahead and punish everybody else, but don't punish me. You know, or we'll really take it to the extreme. God, you're, you're just so loving. You'll, forg- you'll forgive everybody and you'll just take everybody to heaven. Do you realize that heaven would not be heaven if people don't want God in their life in the first place? It would almost be as bad as hell for them because now all of a sudden they're being forced to follow God for the rest of eternity. Now hell is going to be bad. I mean, I'm not saying that, but, but you know, have you ever been forced to do something you didn't want to do, probably at work or at school? Or by your parents. (laughs) Go do your chores. (laughs) And you grumble the whole time you're doing your chores. You grumble the whole time you're doing something because you're not content in being obedient. Imagine if somebody was taken to heaven that didn't want anything to do with God. I love coming to church. Why? Because God is here and we get to praise God and we get to worship God. And I love being in his presence. I can't wait to be in heaven when it's there all the time. Always in his presence, always worshiping God. You know, it would be a wonderful experience, and I'm looking forward to that. And Solomon said, much of this is too deep. We do not even understand the depth and depravity of sin. How many of us have tried to explain our sin away? Well, it really wasn't that bad. I know it was wrong, but, you know, hey, God, you know, didn't really hurt anybody. Just, you know, I know it was a sin, but it wasn't that bad. It's an amazing thing to read in the scriptures where God lists in Proverbs the seven things I hate. Murder and adultery and homosexuality are not on that list. You know, if we as humans were writing it, those would be right on the top of our list. Murder, adultery, you know, uh, stealing, those things would be on our list. What does he put? Lying, gossip, you know, spreading rumors. And you go, God, why, why are those things that you hate I believe it's because those things hurt the soul more than they do the flesh. 
you know, we have the saying that we, many probably taught our kids, you know, this, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. What a lie we teach our kids because we know that words hurt. Every one of us probably had something said to us, even as a young child, that still haunts us to this day. Whether it might be you're fat, you're ugly, you're, you know, you'll never amount to anything, you know, you're worthless, whatever those words might be, still haunt us. Words have great power, which is why God says, watch our words. He tells us that we are going to give account for every idle word we speak. Now, it's bad enough controlling the words that I'm thinking about. But how many times have you been in a conversation and realized after you said something, you should not have said what you said? Those are the idle words. And God says, you're going to give me an account for every one of those as well as the ones you did. So keep your account short. When you, when you say those, ask God for forgiveness. Put it under the blood because he's going to make us account for it. And this is what it is. The depravity, the depth of sin, we will never fully understand. Jeremiah says that our heart is deceitfully wicked, so much so that no one can know it. And we know that that's the case. Even after we become a Christian, we get into sin and, and go, wow, God, how did I find myself here? What, what happened? How deep can I go before, before I hit the bottom? There's really no bottom in sin because it'll keep chewing you up until you die. And this is why Solomon gets depressed. He goes, I plumbed the depths of all these things. I plumbed the depths of the good stuff, and it didn't satisfy. All the things I thought were going to be good didn't even help me out. We need to turn to God and truly turn to him and trust him with all of our heart. And this is so important for us. It is not just saying this prayer that I said, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner, I need you, help me make you Lord. I can say those words all day. They're not an incantation that makes me a Christian. Okay, they're the right words, but without meaning, without understanding, they're worthless words. If I don't truly believe them and trust in God, it doesn't matter. What do I mean when I say trust in God? He's your only option. When I die, I only have one option on the plate, and that's Jesus Christ. I don't have a plan B. Well, you know, Jesus, if you're not enough, I'm going to have a little bit of Muhammad, a little bit of Krishna, a little bit of, of this, a little bit of that, and a little bit of this. No. He says, if you trust me, I am your only option. I put everything on the table for God. My entire eternity is on the table with God, and my life is on the table for God. If he asks me to do something that will cost, cost me my life or cost me my job or cost me whatever, I'm to do it because he is Lord. Now, unfortunately, many of us as Americans have a hard time with this idea of Lord. In, in European countries with kings and stuff, they know what it means to be Lord. You know, the king or queen says something, you do it. In America, our government says we do something, we say, I'm going to replace you next, next time I get to vote. Now, we don't understand this idea of submission to authority the way many countries do and the way the Bible talks about it. We have this idea in America, well, if I don't like it, I'll just wait, I'll wait, this, I'll wait this leader out and somebody else will come be taken in their place and I'll get to the next election, election and I'll vote them out and I'll put somebody in there that I want. You're not going to unelect God. He was never elected in the first place. You can't wait for him to die and get a new, new king. He won't die. His word has never changed. His rules have never changed. 
A matter of fact, his words just get deeper and deeper in their application. Because we've talked about this, you know, in the Old Testament, he said, God said, you can take an eye for an eye. And now in our day, we look at that and go, wow, that is cruel. That is terrible. How could God say, take an eye for an eye? Do you know how radical it was when God said, take an eye for an eye? In that day, if somebody hurt you, you just took your, 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 your company and your troop in. You took everything that they had and brought it back to you. When God said, you can have an eye for an eye, an arm, you know, a broken bone for a broken bone, that was, that was a drastic change. Okay, you mean I can't go in there and take all their stuff because they, they made me mad or they hurt me? God says, no. Jesus comes along and says, now, you know, you've heard an eye for an eye. He goes, I'm going to tell you, love those that hurt you. Don't even take revenge. Now, what would have happened if God had told those people in a day when everything, you know, you could go and take everything, took them straight to love, love your enemy? They would have said, uh-uh, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Even when Jesus said it made no sense, when God said an eye for an eye, it made no sense to them. But at least it was a small step. How are we supposed to deal with other people? God says, I will redeem you and I will take revenge. One of the greatest things that we can do as Christians is let God be our defense. I don't know about the rest of you, but I know every time I try to defend myself, I make a mess out of everything. I say the wrong things, I do the wrong things, I stir up the, stir up the pot and make people madder at me than they were to start with. And that's even if I'm trying to be nice, which I'm usually not if I'm trying to defend myself, but even if I'm trying to defend myself and be nice, it still makes things worse. I am learning that what God wants us to do is shut up. <laughs> shut up and pray for them. Pray for those that are saying bad things. Pray for them that are doing, being hard. Matter of fact, he takes it even further. Be nice to them. Do good things for them. Oh, how hard that is, isn't it? Remember when we saw the, room, the, the movie War Room? At the very end, the, the guy goes to this guy who hates him, and he's got a flat tire, and he goes and fixes his tire for him. You know, and he comes back to the car, and the daughter goes, why would you do that? And he goes, because that's how I'd, I would have liked to have been treated in the same situation. You know, and the guy thinks he's going to get beat up. You know, this, he's been really mean to this guy and really hard to him, and he's kind to them. Isn't that a great testimony of God to somebody who's speaking evil of you? Now, I'm not saying it's easy to do. <laughs> it is hard to do to let God be your defense and to be kind to people. But when God's living in us, and he's changing who we are, it becomes easier and easier the more we practice it. To the point where we just say, okay, God, it's in your hands. I tell you, most of the time I'm getting better at letting God be my defense, and it's so much, life is so much simpler. You know, I've had people go, well, you know, this person says bad things about you. I'm going, that's okay, God will take care of them. God will take care of them. And I've watched God take care and protect his children all my life if somebody will just back up and let God do it. Now, if you want to defend yourself, God will say, okay, fine, you do it. I had a plan for them. I had a plan that probably would redeem them in the long run, but you go ahead and get your hands in there and mess it all up. God is such a gentleman. If you want to mess things up, he'll let you mess it up and make your life worse in the process. And this is what Solomon is saying, the depth of sin. Who can know the depth of sin? On the other side is who can know the depth of goodness. 
Every time I think I'm doing what God wants me to do, he shows me that I can go deeper. Every time I think I know who God is, he shows me more about who he is. And you all have heard me say it. I've said it many times. Anytime I think I know anything about God, he says, you are way too small. I think I know about God's strength, and I'm going, God, you are so strong. You are so wonderful. You created the world. You control everything. And then he shows me another avenue of his strength. God, you are so large. You are so omnipresent. You're everywhere at the, everywhere at the same moment. He goes, yeah, but I'm also every time at the same time. I'm at every universe at the same time. You know, I have a very big God. I'm still thinking too small. I don't know what else is out there to think of, but he is, whatever's out there, he's encompassing that as well. Be aware that God wants to change the way you think about him and life and say you are thinking too small. One of the things when we read these biographies of all these Christians, they start out and God is using them. They're doing wonderful things. And the next thing you know, God takes them to the next level. Then he takes them to the next level. And he keeps moving us on to a place where it takes faith to live. If you're not living a life that takes faith to live, you need to talk to God because you are stagnant and and not growing anymore. It is fun. I think of a George Mueller, you know, learning just to trust God for his finances for school. Then he's learning to take for the finances for his family and then his church. And then all of a sudden God has him start an orphanage. You know, by the time he ended, he was doing 10,000 pounds a month. Now, that doesn't sound like a big number to us with the numbers we're talking about. But in that was a day when if you made 10,000 pounds, you were making millions of dollars in our day. His orphanages were spending what we would say a million dollars a month with no income source other than God. What amazing process. Do we trust God that much? Do we put God and say, God, you are the one that's going to provide for me. Now, he may provide very, very interesting. He may give you a job (laughs) to provide for you. He might supernaturally pay for it. Before I got my job at the prison, it was kind of fun living by faith and watching how God put jobs in my in my path and money coming across my path and, you know, little little things. But the bills got paid and it was it was an interesting way to live for me. My wife didn't care for it so much, but I loved watching God work. I loved watching God work and seeing him meet needs. Do we have that much faith? Do we say, God, I'm waiting for you. I want to see what you're going to do. Because faith is what allows us to say, God, you defend me. This person's vicious. This person is tearing me apart by words, God. What are you going to do about it? God, I'm your child. Better than that, as Christians, we're Jesus's bride. Do you think the husband, Jesus, is going to let his bride be attacked without coming to her defense? A good husband does not let his wife get that way that comes to the defense. Jesus is a good husband. And we look at this and he says, I applied my, in verse 25, I applied my heart to know and to search and to seek out wisdom, to reason things through, to know wickedness and even folliness and madness. So he's going, I'm going to know this. I am going to analyze it. I'm going to know it. And his conclusion is it's too deep. Too deep to know. Too deep to understand. I love the fact that God has things that are too deep to understand. We've talked about this. Several doctrines are hard for us to understand. The Trinity. Every time I teach on the Trinity, I will start the teaching out with, we're going to tell you everything the Bible has to say about the Trinity. You'll know that there is such a thing as a Trinity. And when we get done, you won't understand it any better than when we started. 
I've been studying the Trinity for a long time. I know the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are one and yet different. And it still doesn't make any sense in my brain. And I've listened to all the different explanations and tr you know, truths on it. All I know is, God, you are three in one, and I'm going to have to accept it. Because I can't totally comprehend it. And if somebody tells me they can, they don't understand the Trinity. <laughs> because they will be doing one of the various deceptions on the Trinity if they're going to go, I understand it. And we have to be careful about those because if I try to make them all three separate and they're not one, then, then I'm breaking up what the Bible says. There is one God, and yet we have three clearly individual persons <laughs> that are all God. How do we reconcile that as human beings? I don't know. Maybe when we get to heaven, we'll see and understand exactly how that can be true. But right down this side of, the, of heaven, we don't understand it. And I'm the one, and I've said this, I believe in heaven we still won't understand everything because we do not become God in heaven and because we would become God if we knew everything there was that God knows. We will spend eternity getting to know God better. That's how infinite he is. Even when we're standing in his presence, not forgetting anything, we will still be learning more about him, more about his love, more about his mercy for all of eternity. And we'll get a good jump start when we get our glorified bodies. Yeah, looking forward to these things. He goes on to talk about, I find more bitter than the death of woman whose heart is snares and nests and hands and bands. Whosoever pleases God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be taken by her. In this section, I'm not so much believing that he's actually talking about women in general, though he might be because he's telling had a thousand wives and was not real happy with most of them. But I think he's talking about sin personified as a woman, having nets and snares taken him. Because how do you avoid that? You do what pleases God. How do you live a righteous life? How do you live a way that pleases God? We get into his word. We spend time in church and Bible studies and being taught and turning our life over to God, letting him crucify the flesh and taking our sin away from us so that we can be more and more like him. And this is the wonderful thing that we talk about so often. I love the Christian walk. All I've got to do is let God come in, crucify my flesh, and let him live through me. Now, having said that, that's a lot easier said than done. But by the same token, it's not hard to live it either. Because all I do is say, God, I'm yours. Tell me what to do. Get into his word. How many of you have read the Bible through several times and you keep finding new things in the Bible? It amazes me. I try to read it through every year. And I've done that since way back at 10 or 11 years old, I started the process. And every time I read the Bible, there's still new things in it. I really don't understand that sometimes, you know. And I've all told you, I love to tease God. I'll go to him, God, when did you put this verse in here? It wasn't here the last 28, uh, 48 times I read it. When did you put it in? And I know it's always been there, and he knows that. But it's just kind of a thing. God, when, when did this go in here? Uh, I've never seen it before. I've never seen it. But God has illuminated and said, pay attention to it. And it's time to, when God does that to you, meditate on that verse. Put it into practice. Live it. God wants us living righteous lives. He knows we will not be perfect. He knows that we won't be perfect. He expects us, though, to be sanctified or become more sanctified. And sanctification is the process of cleaning us up. And he's the one that does it. 
It's not me who sanctifies myself. God sanctifies it through the word. Romans 12.1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. Verse 2, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of the word. How do we change our lifestyle and our thinking? We get into God's word. Spend time in his word. Be changed. It's amazing when you walk with God long enough that you don't even understand how non-Christians think anymore. I can't even understand sometimes how people do the things they do to one another because of how much God has changed me. And I know that all of you should be in that same place. The further you walk with God, the more you get disconnected from the way the world thinks. You You go and you watch a movie or a television show and you look and go on, boy, they made a bunch of dumb decisions. And unfortunately, in the movies, they usually don't pay for their dumb decisions. And the TV shows, they don't normally pay for their dumb decisions, which tells people in the world that you can get away with doing wrong. And God says, consequences for everything you do wrong. We need to be very careful. Understand that sin has consequences always. They may be prolonged. You may have to wait a while. David's adulterous affair with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah didn't have to be paid for until about two years later when Nathan came to him and said, you're the sinner and here's God's judgment upon you. And David paid from that point to the day he died because of his sin. But how many people other than died? His family suffered. There was deaths and bloodshed and rapes and and all kinds of things that went on, a rebellion that tried to take his kingdom away. The people, the people were harmed because of David's sin. Consequence to sin. Consequences for sin. Sin always hurts more people and deeper than we expect it to harm us. Because a lot of times we think, well, God, I'm the only one that's going to get hurt. This is, a, this is a harmless sin. There's no such thing as a harmless sin. Other people are always hurt by sin. Now, people like to talk about pornography. Oh, it's a harmless sin. All the people in that market are not there by choice. You know, the ones that are the actors, not all of them are there by choice either. They're being harmed. The things it do, does to people's minds are harmful. The, the relationships that are destroyed because of it. All of it has great harm. And then there's others that are really bad, bad harmful things that we commit into. And we need to be careful Sin always has consequence. Verse 27 is, Behold, this I have found, says the preacher, counting one by one to find out the account, which yet my soul seeks, that I find not a man in a thousand and have I found, but a woman among all those I have not found. He says, I have looked it over. I have analyzed it. I have run the books. <laughs> He's, he's using it in an accounting term here. I counted one by one. I, I ran the books. I balanced the books. What did he say? It's hard to find a man in a thousand that is righteous. And I think this other part was his, his negativity toward women showing, but he didn't find a woman. <laughs> now, I said in that one very sad, but I think that's his personality coming through. A thousand wives led him into I, idol worship. And we know that that's the case because the book of uh, Chronicles tells us, you know, he followed God until he started building temples for his foreign wives. He built temples for their gods. 
And you know the next step was something along the lines of, Solomon, honey, you built me this temple for my God, but you have never gone with me. And he probably ignored him for a long time, but you know, after a while he wore down and he went to their, went to their temples and walked away from God. Isn't that the way we do most of our sin? It won't hurt to do it one time. It won't hurt to go with this person this one time. They've been bugging me about it. And the next thing you know, you're going down the wrong path altogether. We need to be very careful. It is easy to go down the wrong path. It is easy to get ungodly counsel from other people and make bad decisions. This happens frequently in marriages where something, when bad things are going on and people will counsel, well, you're not happy. You should just divorce him. It's so easy to get a divorce. Just do it. That's the world's counsel. That is not biblical counsel. If, now, if that person's having an affair, then yes, that, that's God's reason for saying, yes, you can. He doesn't say you must, but that's, that is the only godly reason. If somebody's being physically abused or mentally abused, Divorce is not an option, but separate from each other and get some counseling to fix the problem is the answer. God says, I hate divorce. Why? Because it says, what God has joined, let no man pull asunder. Men and women were created to be one. And we all know people who have divorced. And even if it's an amicable divorce, the people are okay with the divorce, there's still a ragged edge in their life where their soul has been torn and guilt and anger against the other person involved in that uh, divorce. And that happens over years. You know, years, decades later, they're still angry. It's still a ragged edge on it. Get the counseling that, you know, make sure that our advice as Christians to them is let God fix the situation. Let God help out. Seek counsel, godly counsel. You know, and it's sad that there are going to be some pastors out there that aren't going to give godly advice either. They're going to go, well, you know, all my, all my psychological training and my sociological training says if you're not happy, get out of it. I would challenge anybody in the Bible to show me a verse that says God says we're going to be happy. He says we will have peace. He says we'll have joy. But he has never promised us happiness all the time. He's going to send trials. He's going to send tribulations. He's going to send hard times. Can you stay happy and joyful during those periods of time? Yes, theoretically you can. If you stay hidden in God and let him be your defense all the time, you can stay pretty happy. Are you going to do it? I haven't met anybody that's done it. Stayed in him all the time to be happy all the time. But even then, even if you are in him, you still are going to have hard times. There's times when I've gone through some very rough times. I've got to the end and I kind of look back and going. Wow, God, a lot has happened over this last week, month, year. You know, uh, you handled it really well, God. I didn't even know that it was there. You see, I, I liken it to the idea, if you're in an aluminum building, aluminum roof in the middle of a storm, you're a little worried sometimes because you hear all the, pain, the rain on it. You hear the, hear the storm rattling the, the aluminum uh, all around you. But if you go through the same storm and you're in a cinder block building, with a good, strong roof on the top of it. You can sleep soundly. You don't have anything to worry about. That is how I liken it with God. I can live in my flesh, which has no protection, getting beat up, rain pouring through the ceiling, <laughs> wind blowing through all the cracks in the walls because my life is terrible, 
in and of itself, or I can live in Christ, totally protected. It is our choice. And then he ends this section with, Lo, this only have I found. God hath made man upright. It would be wonderful if we stopped at that point. <laughs> God has made man upright. And he did. Adam and Eve were perfect. God has a plan for us to be upright if we will just surrender to him. But he goes on to say, but they have sought out many inventions it uses in the King James imaginations. Because of the sin nature we have, every imagination of our heart without God leads to wickedness. That was the testimony before the flood of Noah. Every imagination of man was evil. They did what was right in their own sight. I don't know how much further we've gotten until we get to that point in our generation. We're pretty bad. But I don't think we're all the way there yet. There is some redemptive qualities in, going out in there, but we're getting worse. Look at all the mass shootings we have. And contrary to what the government says, it's not the guns that are it's the problem. It is the people's hearts that are imagining with all their bad imaginations that are the problem. Because if they didn't have the guns, they would be like England where they use knives and, and, and uh, clubs. They have just as much violence over there, just not gun violence. And the bad guys still have guns in England, even though it's against the law for anybody to own guns, including the police. So the bad guys still have guns, still use them, but their murders now are knife and club murders. You know, people are still going to have imaginations that are evil. And they're still going to have the desire to do evil. And unless God has a great revival coming across this world, it is going to keep getting worse. Because without God, people are going to live out the way they want to live, and that is with evil. And we need to be aware that that's happening. Our job as Christians is to try to evangelize the world. The first century Christians, a small band of about 500 people, turned the Roman Empire upside down. And the Roman Empire was worse than we are today. I hear evangelists all the time say, well, you know, we're getting so bad that God's got to destroy us. We're not bad yet. We're getting bad. We're getting awful. But if you look at history, the world used to be really bad. And we're getting there. We're getting there fast. With each generation, it's getting there faster as we dump God out of all of our institutions. And we teach people, you don't need God. We as Christians need to come in and say, you need God. He is our only hope. If we do our job, we can turn the world upside down again and, and get a great revival and prolong things. If we don't, Jesus is coming back soon and taking us home, which is a good side of that, but I don't want to see that necessarily. I've got some grandkids. I'd like to see them grow up in a world that has some godliness in it. I don't want to see them grow up in a totally devastatingly evil world. I want to see them grow up in a righteous world. And that'll take a revival. Will it happen? I don't know. I'm going to pray for it. We're praying for it. We've got our names on the list for the prayer on it. We want to see people get saved on a revival start. If we can do that, we may put off the return of Christ by a couple hundred years. It would be wonderful. Or not. I'm still looking forward to his return too, so 
you know, the, the good side, we win either way. We win either way. If Jesus comes today or tomorrow or next week, we win because we get to go to heaven. The world loses because things get awful. For seven years, this world will go through as close to hell as they can on this world while Satan rules. We think it's bad now. We think it's bad if it gets all people doing evil, all the evil. Think of an evil with no punishment, with Satan ruling. You kill somebody and you get away with it because who cares? You steal from everybody and who cares because Satan is ruling. We're talking about evil to the max during that period of time. I don't want to see it. I don't want my grandkids to get, of course, I don't want to see my great, 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 great grandkids to see it either. So might as well come now on one side of it. But this is what he's saying. God created us for good. And yet our desires are evil. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But the gift of God is eternal life. Because of Adam and Eve's fall, every single person is born a sinner. Born a sinner. We are guilty from the moment we are conceived. We're guilty of sin. Because that's what we are. And God says, I have a gift for you. I have a gift for you because Jesus came and became, came to this world, lived a perfect life, became sin on the cross, and paid a debt we could never pay. What is it that God's asked us to do? What is it he's asked each one of us to do for him? Whatever that is, do it with all your heart, with all your might, with all your strength. Give him all of yourself. Doesn't matter how old or how young you are. You know, I hear people going all the time, well, you know, I'm at this age and I'm done serving God. We're not done serving God until he takes us home. We may have to slow down. We may not be able to do as much as we used to do in our, in our younger days. But we never get to the places while we're on this world where I cannot do something for God. All of us have a voice that we can tell people about Jesus. We can share with others. We can serve in some capacity. I've shared with you all, I want to be preaching up until the day I die, and I wouldn't, wouldn't mind on one side dying while I'm preaching. Now, I've also told you all, uh, the trauma to the congregation might be not worth it, but my heart would be to die while I'm preaching. <laughs> but the trauma to, to the congregation is not what I want to see. So I, I, I tell God, no, let it be after, you know, but not during because I don't want to traumatize everybody else. But my heart says, doing the thing I love to do, tell people about God, would be the greatest thing to be doing when I passed away. You know, what are you doing for God? What has he called you to do? Not what do I think I should do because somebody else is doing it. Not what I think I should be doing because others are doing it. Or not what, wanting what they want. What has God called you to do? Now, if he's called you to do something that somebody else is doing, go talk to them and learn how to do it. Now, if he's taught you, called you to be a teacher, and you know I just should be a teacher, then go talk to somebody who teaches and learn from them. Spend some time learning. If you want to be a prayer warrior, spend some time with prayer warriors and learn how to pray. You, know, you want to learn how to witness to people, spend time with people that are good at witnessing. You know, I told you all, I had a great time one time. I went out with an, an evangelist. And I mean a true evangelist, not somebody who says they're evangelist coming into churches and doing services. This guy told 
everybody around us about Jesus. Every time he talked to somebody, he was telling them about Jesus. If I had tried to be that, I'd have been obnoxious and probably thrown out of the, thrown out of the restaurant. But everybody's listening to this guy. And I'm going, God, that is, what a gift. What a gift he has. I was kind of envious. I'm going, God, I really like that. No, I don't want that. <laughs> you know, uh, how, many, how many times did I say something wrong? I, I go, let me, let me do my other, <laughs> let me do my teaching. But you know, it is fun to watch somebody, but don't be envious of what they have. Their gift from God is their gift from God. God has given every one of us a gift. If you're his child, you have a gift. You have something that God has given you to do. Do it with all of your heart. It could be something as simple as construction and building things. It could be something as simple as fixing things. You know, especially in an old building like ours, you know, we need we need people who can <laughs> fix and fix things up. You know, it's an amazing thing because I'm not the one that's going to fix anything. Because if I fix it, it'll fall apart faster than it faster than it was when it was before I fixed it. And I know that that's not my job. Now I can carry the lumber and the nails and and the saws and the, and the tools to you, no problem. I'm not going to cut the boards. I'm not going to do a lot of that stuff because I want it to stay working. <laughs> and I know my limitation and know that that's not my calling. What has God called you to do? How are you fitting into the body? If you don't know what it is, talk to him and ask him. God, what is it that you want me doing for your body? And start looking around and finding out what it is that he wants. Blackaby in the book Experiencing God says, when you're trying to find out what God's doing or wants you to do, look around and see what he's doing. Too many times we say, God, this is what I'm going to do. Come and join me. And God says, no, I'm over here. Come and join me. You know, you're supposed to be over here, not over there. So get over here. We as humans like to tell God what to do. How many of us, don't raise your hands. How many of us have told God, God, uh, I, I want this and this is how I want it answered. You know, God, I really need this bill paid. You know, uh, so-and-so over there, they got lots of money. Why don't you just put it on their heart to give me, give me the money I need for this bill? You know, that's usually not the way God's going to answer our prayers. When I tell God how, you, how to answer my prayer, he's not going to do that. You know, we want to be careful. God is God. You know, I've learned a lot of things in my life, and I've learned that God is, there's only one God, and I'm not him. And I've also learned he did not hire me to be his advisor. God does not need an advisor. He's the only monarch in the entire universe and in all of creation that does not need an advisor. And if he wanted an advisor, he would go talk to Jesus and the Holy Spirit, not to any of his creation. We need to be careful when we go to God in prayer and just present God our needs. Because that's all he needs. He doesn't need us telling us how to answer it. He doesn't need us to tell anything else. Just listen to God. So our challenge for us today is, what has God called you to do? Reach out and serve him. Because we're all sinners. Listen to what he wants. Listen to what he wants to do. And for anybody listening on the internet, we want to make sure they understand. If they don't know Jesus, today is the day to get to know Jesus. Make him Lord and Savior. Admit you're a sinner. God, I am a sinner. I deserve punishment. I need your forgiveness. Come into my life. Very simple prayer, but it has to be meant. 
All right, we're going to close. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity. Lord, for each person in this room that knows you and that is listening, Lord, help us to see what our calling is for you and to step out and follow it. Lord, if there's anybody listening to this message at any time that doesn't know you, that they would see that today they need you, that they are a lost sinner. They are depending on your mercy and grace to be able to be forgiven and that you're ready and willing to do that. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.